0: I did remember that other item. It is the Benevolent Fund. It's the first of the month, and we have an offering basket at the back of the church. At the end of the service, if you'd like to participate in that, you're more than welcome to, and we use these funds to help minister to some of the needs within our church family. So the Benevolent Fund is back there. And just a follow-up on the day camp and the uh, Vacation Bible School, one of the reasons that we delay just a little bit putting it out online is because there are a limited number of spots in the day camp, and we've tried to give our church young people the first shot at those. Once they go public and day camp fills up, um, you're out of luck, kind of. We always try to squeeze somebody in, but we only have a certain amount we can handle, at least in the day camp, and I know that VBS gets full, too. So... Um, our text this morning will be in John chapter 3. It's now been a month since we've been in our study of John and third chapter is where we left off in verse 8. So if you have your Bibles, you can join me in John chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through that text. I have to say I'm very curious now what Christian said about me in the Sunday school. But having understood that Mark Dever was talking about expositional preaching makes me a little bit nervous that I get it all right this morning, but you're used to me by now anyway, so I trust that we're going to do what honors the Lord here this morning with his word. Beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1, I will read down through verse 15. Our study will be beginning in verse 9, but let's read the context. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Did I announce that it's children's church this morning? I did that, okay. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, But you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe... How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give to our hearts this morning openness to receive your truth, discernment, to know what it means. And Father, give to us the ability as your church to apply these things to our lives so that we become more secure in our faith, trusting more wholly in you, that we become better evangelists, better servants of God, better preachers of the gospel, better witnesses for Christ, not only by our words, but our lives as well. So, Father, I ask that by your Spirit you would make these truths come alive to your church this morning. And as always, we speak on behalf of those that are here that are yet without Christ, that you might open that heart to see the beauty of the Savior and the power of that Savior to cleanse us completely from our sins and to restore us to fellowship with you. You are to be praised because you are a saving God. And we do so this morning, even as we open up your word together. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in our study of this conversation between this Pharisee Nicodemus and Jesus Christ, we have learned from our past study, verses 1 to 8, that this man Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, putting him into that religious order of prestige within the Jewish community there in Jerusalem. But John lets us know that he was ruler of the Jews too, also identifying him as part of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the ruling governing authority over the Jewish community. Even though they were under Roman domination, the Sanhedrin ruled over the Jewish community. So we're talking about a man that had high influence within the Jewish community there in Jerusalem. And it is quite possible, as noted in our previous study that this position that Nicodemus held within the governing body there in Jerusalem is why he came to Jesus at night. Perhaps he did not want his contemporaries to see him collaborating with Jesus as if giving away to his teaching. That's a possibility. It is also possible that Nicodemus makes this nightly visit to have an audience with Jesus that is undistracted by the crowds that are now gathering around Jesus by daytime. Given in chapter 2 that Jesus was performing miracles and there were those that were believing on his name, but Jesus, remember, was holding himself away from them because he knew the heart. And that signals us this morning that he knew Nicodemus' heart as well. When Nicodemus came to Jesus Christ at night, for whatever reasons he did so, Jesus knew the need of this man. And we see that in first and second verse as Nicodemus approaches Jesus and begins an investigation, and it gives us an idea of why Nicodemus has come. He's witnessed Jesus doing these miracles. He's heard about the miracles and signs. No doubt he's already heard about the cleansing of temple experience and the authority that Jesus conducted in that earlier episode. So naturally, as a ruler of great distinction in Israel, he's going to want to know what's up with this guy. These seem to be indications, Jesus, that you are sent from God, that God is with you. But before Nicodemus can ever get the questions out of his mouth, Jesus intercedes and gives to him, Nicodemus, the explanation of gospel truth that this man most needed to hear. So while Nicodemus came wanting to know more about Jesus, Jesus takes him right to this man's spiritual need. And hence what unfolded was the discussion about the necessity of regeneration. You must be born again. And if that didn't rock Nicodemus' world enough, Jesus then launches into yet a second essential truth about the gospel. And we're going to get into that second essential component this morning. But with the study of regeneration, that one must be born again, we can understand how this would have greatly troubled Nicodemus, who came as a man already thinking that he was entitled to the kingdom of God. He is one that was born into the family of Abraham. So his lineage certainly entitled him, at least in his mind. But here is a man that was so devoutly religious and not with an abstract religion, but with the religion of God himself, the religion of the law that God had brought to his people. How safe and secure did this man feel in his relation with God? And yet Jesus says to him, nobody can even see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And then a second time, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You can understand well the confusion in Nicodemus's mind, the uncertainty. And that brings us to verse 9, where Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be? It is clear by now that Nicodemus is very unsure, very uncertain, what Jesus is teaching, where he's coming from, what this business is about the rebirth, or being born again. And what I refer to in this section 9 to verse 15 is a hesitation on Nicodemus's part. We see him speak in verse 9. After that, you do not see Nicodemus speak. He's caught off guard. He doesn't know how to respond. There is no rebuttal. He questions Jesus no further, at least according to John's record. But rather, as scholars say, starting in verse 10, there is nothing more than a monologue. Jesus is here giving a lengthier explanation that is attached to his previous one in regard to the spiritual rebirth that is caused by the Holy Spirit. And we don't hear about this man, Nicodemus, again until chapter 7 and then again in chapter 19. Now in chapter 7, it appears that Nicodemus has a different view of Jesus Christ than he does here in this nightly visit. But again, from verse 10 to verse 21, what starts out as a conversation between two men has ended up in a discourse by Jesus. And in loyalty to his religious training, Nicodemus hesitates to believe the words of truth that are being given to him by the one that is the author of truth. The Creator God is standing before Him. The Old Testament Scriptures that Jesus has used in verses 2-8, to eight, or 3-8, to eight, He's going to use again here in our text this morning as was read in our, the opening of our service. And I call this a hesitation because it does appear from chapter 17 and from chapter 19 in John's record that Nicodemus sometime later appears to become a believer in Jesus Christ. Yet here as God speaks essential gospel truth to Nicodemus, he questions, he grows silent, he doesn't defend his position or ask for an explanation anymore in regard to this man of signs and miracles and theological understanding. But what is also clear from the words of Jesus, this man did not believe here. First, in this discourse, Jesus lays out a critique that is important for us to see. Because it's a critique of an unbeliever's heart. This is where Nicodemus is at this moment as an unbeliever. And you and I as evangelists know this from our own experience. We were like this man, Nicodemus. But as we share Christ, it is important for us to see what is taking place between Nicodemus and the greatest evangelist that has ever walked on this earth, Jesus Christ. We can learn from our master here about sharing gospel truth. It's during this spiritual hesitation that Jesus lays out a second gospel truth that confounded Nicodemus' religious convictions. And if you read verse 9, Again, Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? It almost implies that Nicodemus is just an inquiry seeker. He's just looking for some truth. He's almost being objective, evaluating matters in his mind. So Jesus clarifies for us what is actually taking place in the heart of this Pharisee. Because I assure you that Nicodemus is not here with an honest and open mind to know the truth. And Jesus exposes that. If anything, what takes place is a confirmation of the previous gospel reality that a man must be born again if to even see the kingdom of God and how one is to enter into that kingdom. You must be born again. The Spirit of God must come like the wind and breathe life into this spiritually dead religious ruler because he has no idea what he desperately needs. But Jesus does know. He knows the heart. Jesus identifies what is really behind the question, how can these things be? Jesus answers by saying to Nicodemus, do you want to know why you don't see how these things can be? Do you want to know why you're hesitating to embrace the biblical truth about entering the kingdom of God? It is because you, number one, verse 10, do not understand the truth of God's word. Jesus answered and said to him in response to that question in verse nine, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? What Jesus is referring to here is Nicodemus's authority, education, and understanding of the Word of God, the Old Testament Scriptures. This is a man that was thoroughly educated in the Word of God. He had knowledge of this, uh, this Word. And he used this knowledge in his position to teach others. And yet Nicodemus had no understanding of the need for the Holy Spirit to come to every sinner and cause them to become alive to God if they're to enter into the kingdom of God. Not only that, but when Nicodemus first came to Jesus, back in verse 2, he came representing others who believed the same way that he did. If you back up to verse 2, notice what he says. Rabbi, we know that you came from God as a teacher. Who is the we are referencing? The we is referencing the other Pharisees, the others on the Sanhedrin, the other religious rulers, the Jewish leadership in Nicodemus's day. And yet as teachers in Israel, these men did not understand from God's word that none of them would make it into the kingdom of God unless the Holy Spirit comes to them and makes them alive to God. They did not understand that their own works in the law could never earn them a place in the kingdom that their national heritage did not entitle them to be a citizen of the kingdom. Nor would their service, their position, or their devotion make any contribution to life in the kingdom. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul identified exactly what was going on with Nicodemus that Jesus is here addressing. Again, Nicodemus has not innocently asked a question of Jesus. How can these things be? Because he's hoping to be fed some answers so that he can understand. But rather, Jesus is saying, what is in your heart, Nicodemus, is a darkness, a lack of understanding. Paul brings this out in Ephesians 4, back up to verse 17. And then look at verse 18 with me. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer, just the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their hearts. That's Nicodemus at the moment that Jesus is confronting him. His heart was darkened. He had no understanding and because of it, it excluded him from the life of God. He had no part in the kingdom of God you must be born again. I think many of us have listened to debates between Christian scholars and other religions or even atheists or other unbelievers. And perhaps we've had some of those apologetic moments ourselves when we've had some discussion with unbelievers or other religions. And oftentimes as you're listening to these biblical scholars um, having these kinds of debates with unbelievers, the unbelievers are also scholars and they've, they've spent some time in the Word of God, haven't they? Because they bring Scripture in to use against Scripture to show that the Word of God is not God's Word, but it's false. They have an understanding of the Word in a very secular way, but like Paul says in Ephesians 4, their hearts are darkened in their understanding. They can read a passage of the Scripture and they think they know what it means, but out of its context, they don't really understand. And so we, you and I can learn from Jesus, who is the perfect evangelist, as He's taking this man to understand why it is that He's confused on these things. When He's a very religious man, a very zealous man, a very devout man. If we were to look at Nicodemus and his contemporaries, we would likely say, how is it possible that this man isn't part of God's kingdom? He's so good and religious. He prays to God five times a day. He knows the scriptures. He quotes them. That's Nicodemus. And yet he doesn't understand the essential component of the gospel, that you must be born again, or you cannot Enter the kingdom of God. Which tells us immediately Nicodemus is outside the kingdom. And if he were to die at that moment, the doors to the kingdom would be closed to him. With all of his religious understanding, with all of his devotion, with all of his zeal, with all of his service to God and the keeping of the law, would God close the door to the kingdom to this man? Jesus is saying, yes. You can't even see the kingdom unless you are born again. What Nicodemus and his contemporaries did not understand is that everything they were laboring for would make no difference without the intrusion of the Holy Spirit. Even with all of their studies of the very Scripture that reveals these truths, they did not have the capacity to understand what is written in God's Word because it's the Spirit of God that must make truth come alive in the minds of men. They did not understand. They read it. They memorized it. They prayed it. They sang it. But they didn't understand the Word of God. In verse 11, Jesus continues this critique by showing the truth is not only not understood, it is not accepted. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. It goes without saying that if there is no understanding, a person will not embrace the truth and accept it as their own. This is what Jesus is saying. That's the damning result of ignorance. It's the damning result. It is not as if they had not heard the truth, because Jesus says here in verse 11, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we testify. What we've seen, yet you do not accept. Here is the Son of God standing before Nicodemus, the creator of the universe, the author of the Old Testament scriptures stands right before him, and he's saying to Nicodemus, we speak, we testify of what we know and what we have seen, and you, sir, do not accept Jesus uses the plural form of the word you here. Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus. It's not just Nicodemus then. It's Nicodemus and all of his colleagues, all of his contemporaries. And again, you do not accept our testimony. In other words, you all have not accepted what I have preached to you. He's not only speaking to Nicodemus, but to the whole of the Jewish community and leadership, which promotes the idea of reliance and trust on their own religious devotion. The subject is now expanded to well more than the doctrine of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Jesus uses the plural in speaking of the testimony of that which is known about him. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony who is jesus referring to here certainly himself and what he has been preaching about himself but it must also of necessity include john the baptist who spoke and preached by divine revelation that messiah is now come and no doubt it includes the disciples who are beginning to speak on the streets of Jesus, this unique one that has called them to be his apostles or sent ones. He's referring to the testimony given to, to Jesus by John the Baptist, by Jesus himself, by undoubtedly his disciples, who are all beginning now to preach about him. He, here Jesus references not only the need that man has to be born again, but who he is as the one who must provide salvation. He's referencing the false understanding that held Nicodemus to rely on his own works of righteousness. The ministry of John the Baptist, we know, was largely one of calling people to repent of their sins and to look to the one who is now present among them, the Messiah. That's what John proclaimed. Messiah is now here. Prepare yourselves in repentance. The testimony being preached of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, was not accepted by Nicodemus and the Jewish leaders. The inability of their own righteousness to save was not accepted by this man. And when Nicodemus asked, how can these things be? He was saying, I do not accept what is being declared about Jesus Messiah. I do not accept what you are saying about yourself, Jesus. We may look at verse 9 as an innocent question. But as we look at verse 10 and 11, Jesus did not see it as innocent. He sees what's on the heart. This is a man that doesn't understand the word of God that he has studied all of his life. And because he doesn't understand, he will not accept that God is standing before him as the savior that he must have. If he's to enter the kingdom of God. The testimony being preached of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, is being rejected at this moment by this religious ruler. And this brings us to verse 12. Not only is the truth not understood, it is not accepted, and therefore it is not believed. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven. Oops. Verse 12 is what I mean. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So consequently, in verse 12, Jesus adds, not only do you not understand, do you not accept, but you don't do the one thing that is needed for salvation. And what is that? Faith. To believe. Nicodemus' failure to understand and accept the truth of Christ and Savior held them back from the one thing that was most needed, that they would be saved, to believe, to have faith. So he continues the critique of Nicodemus' hesitation. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how are you going to believe if I tell you heavenly things? It goes without saying that if a person does not accept a thing to be true, they will certainly not believe it to be true. The earthly things that Jesus speaks of here falls under the previous teaching in verse 3 through verse 8. And while the, the work of regeneration by God is most certainly heavenly in character and origin, as William Hendrickson writes, it is nonetheless that a work that is accomplished here in the earthly realm. In other words, to be born again is, is heavenly in origin, but it is one of those earthly things that Jesus is talking about because it takes place on the sinner while we're in this earthly life. If the spirit that breathes new life into a spiritually dead sinner, it is causing them to understand their sinful condition and their need of a savior. That takes place in this life. It's under this work of the Spirit that a sinner comes to faith in Jesus Christ, turning in repentance from their former passion to live for self, to live in their sin, and turn to the life that experienced newness of spiritual life and vitality with Christ. All this takes place on the sinner while in this earthly realm. And if one cannot believe that they are a sinner in need of a Savior to come and rescue them, they won't believe heavenly things. The heavenly things then must speak of Jesus Christ Himself. That He who descended from heaven is He also who will ascend to His throne in heaven once again, as verse 13 implies. Now this may be, in part, how Jesus comes back to those first moments with Nicodemus back in verses 1 and 2, where this man was wondering who Jesus Christ is. And you can read verse 1 and 2 and understand that's what Nicodemus is really getting at. Here's a guy, new on the streets of Jerusalem, doing signs and miracles, commanding authority to drive merchants out of the temple. He's created quite a stir. Nicodemus comes to investigate who is this guy. He appears to be sent by God, but we must know more of him. Where does authority come from? What gives you the right to do these things? Where do you get the power to do these signs and miracles? This is a man that was looking to know more about Jesus. Those are the heavenly things. And you realize what Jesus is saying? You didn't believe the earthly things that you're a sinner in need of salvation. You're resting on your own righteousness. You think you're already good enough to get into the kingdom. And if you don't believe what I'm saying to you about the necessity of being born again, how are you going to understand that I am the Son of God? Come down to rescue sinners. Nicodemus had initially come to Jesus to understand more about Him, but Jesus is saying, you can't believe who I am if you don't even believe That you're a sinner who is dead to God. In this context, both the earthly things and the heavenly things needed to be believed. But if men do not believe the one, they cannot believe the other. Yet not stopping the discourse here, Jesus continues to explain the second essential component of salvation. It is the way in which God has extended life eternal The first component, you must be born again. The second component, a Savior must come to do the work of redemption that we could never do for ourselves. And this is where Jesus introduces himself to Nicodemus in terms of the heavenly. I am the Son of God. Look at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. In verse 13, Jesus identifies Himself as the Son of Man, but you realize He's presenting Himself as God's Son. He's the one that descended from God, and He will ascend again to God the Father. He is the Son of God, But he's identifying himself. The self-identity he wants Nicodemus to know of him is that I am also the Son of Man. That's his self-description. It informs Nicodemus that God must step out of eternity and descend to our world, extending to us eternal life. These are the heavenly things that this man could not believe because he didn't believe the earthly things that Jesus came to this world taking upon Himself our humanity, that God became flesh, becoming a Son from among us, born of a virgin named Mary, hence He is the Son of Man, and at the same time the Son of God. Later in John 16, and verse 28, Jesus spoke of what He here tells Nicodemus when He said just hours before His death, His crucifixion. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. I descended, extending salvation, and I will return to the Father where I belong. Jesus was informing Nicodemus of the heavenly truths about himself that he is God in the flesh. And Nicodemus is hesitating here not taking hold of this truth by faith. To believe in the heavenly things is to believe that God has ordained from before the foundation of the world a plan of redemption for the souls of sinful mankind. It is to believe that this redemption could only be accomplished by God's Son who would step away from His eternal throne and descend to our realm taking on the body of a man. Flesh and blood He would become so as to be the Son of Man. The heavenly things that Nicodemus could not at that moment believe was that God will not accept the righteousness of men no matter their devotion and efforts to keep His law. He could not believe, Nicodemus, that his own works of righteousness were not acceptable to God because he could not believe that God was perfect in His holiness, in His righteousness. Oh, the Pharisees would likely preach that God is holy. But they assigned to God a much lower holiness that would somehow embrace the perverted righteousness of men, that God would be okay with that. The heavenly truth rejected by the Jewish rulers was that only the Son of God could be as holy as God required. Only the Son could fill that position. Only He, Jesus, would be accepted by God as a substitute offering because God is perfect in His holiness. And only his son is perfect. Herein lies the problem with Nicodemus and every other unbeliever. If they will not believe their sinful lives are insufficient to be acceptable to God, they most certainly will not believe they need a Savior sent from heaven by God. There is only one Savior who can accomplish the salvation of men. Verse 13, the one who ascended into heaven is the one who descended from heaven the Son of God, who became the Son of Man. This is what makes the testimony of Jesus Christ so trustworthy. Backing up to verse 11, we speak of what we know and testify what we've seen. Who better than Jesus to say that? The one who stood in the presence of God and witnessed and saw and came to this earth and testified. John the Baptist, who has revealed to him these things. And Jesus teaching his disciples these heavenly things. Who better to be a source than the Son of God himself? The problem with men, including Pharisees like Nicodemus and the whole of the Sanhedrin, is that God's heavenly requirement for the redemption of sinful mankind is that it is entirely outside of man's knowledge apart from God revealing it to him. Who was present with God when the plan of salvation was decreed? Only God's Son. And if what He declares about our condition and our need of salvation is not believed, it will be impossible to believe that heaven belongs only to those who know Jesus Christ for who He is and what He alone could accomplish for sinners. In brief, man cannot save himself He needs a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior sent of God to deliver men from the penalty of their sin. This is what Nicodemus had not seen. It's what he had not accepted. And therefore he did not believe. This is the truth of God's kingdom that needed to be understood, to be accepted and believed, to expose this gospel truth. Jesus takes this biblical scholar where? To the Old Testament Scripture and to a passage this man would have known all too well. We read it this morning at the opening of our service in Numbers chapter 21. You may want to reference it again in Numbers 21, specifically verses 4 down through verse 9. It's where Israel is on this extended journey in the wilderness. And though God had provided for the needs of Israel on this journey, time and again Israel grows restless and disobedient in numbers 21 we read that they grew impatient with God and grumbled against God and Moses they didn't like the food that God had provided they preferred their life in Egypt and because of their rebellion God sent fiery serpents among the people that bit the people and many died it's this story that Jesus takes Nicodemus to now the people cry out to Moses that they had sinned against the Lord. They plead with Moses to intercede on their behalf. So Moses appealed to the Lord based on the people's repentance. And the Lord responded in a way that would picture man's problem with sin and God's solution. I want you to note in that story that Israel is asking of God, take away the serpents. Did you notice that in the text? Get rid of the snakes. They're biting us. They're killing us. And God does not do that, does he? He doesn't take the snakes away. He could have easily removed the serpents. He could have told Moses, take that amazing staff of yours and do what you did in Egypt. Drive the snakes away. Instead, he directs Moses to make an image of a fiery serpent, raise it up on a standard for the people to see. Moses then fashions a serpent out of bronze and lifted it up on a pole to be visible to the congregation of Israel. Now, it's important to note the bronze is symbolic of God's judgment and His justice. Remember the brazen altar in the law of Moses. Or look ahead to Revelation chapter 1 and see that vision of Jesus that John saw that caused him to fall down as a dead man. That Jesus had feet of bronze. It speaks of the judgment of God, and that's important. God instructs Israel that if someone was bitten by one of the poisonous serpents, that God did not take away, they had only to look at the bronze serpent, the representative serpent, and they would live. This was an act of God's gracious salvation his people, and God directed this to be done as a testimony to the Savior that he would one day send to deliver his people. This bronze serpent was really a picture of the sting of death brought about by sin, but why a fiery serpent? Is that not a vulgar way to represent the Son of God? The serpent of sin is that which has bitten all men bringing death. The snake symbolized our infection with sin, and that's a stunning picture, given that it was the serpent in the garden that tempted man to sin against God. And if you go back to Genesis chapter one, it's interesting that when the serpent came to Eve and enticed her with the forbidden fruit, it says that Eve looked. She looked at it and saw that it was good. And it was desirable. The serpent enticed her. Look at it and desire it. And what is God doing here in Numbers 21 with this representative serpent? It's to be put up on a standard for all to see. And what are they to do? To look. Isn't it amazing that God doesn't tell the people of Israel to work up an ointment and smeared all over their bodies, to make sacrifices, or to go wash their mouths out with soap for grumbling against the Lord. None of their works were going to help them here. They had but to look. And I think it's interesting that Moses did not hang a real serpent on the standard, but rather a bronze representation. And it seems odd to me that a picture of the serpent would be that image that God would want to represent His Son. But it's important to understand that it was a representative serpent that was put on that standard, not a real snake. And that representative serpent was to picture Jesus Christ. Jesus was not the original sin. He had no sin in Him. But the Scripture says what? He became sin for us i would never say that kind of stuff about jesus unless the bible was telling me directly that's what happened in second corinthians 5 21 he who knew no sin became sin for us when jesus was hanged upon the cross he represented us there taking upon himself our sin And according to Galatians 3.13, this is what Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Do you realize what that is symbolic of? That Christ became a curse. He became sin for us. And again, we would never utter those words unless the word of God was telling it to us about the son of God because he knew no sin and yet he became sin. Does it not make sense now that that serpent was not a living snake but it was a bronze representation bronze speaking of the judgment of God and that Jesus would be hung there on a tree which is a symbol of the curse cursed is every man who is hanging on a tree. If the cross declares anything to us, it's that God's Son became a curse. And it's in this imagery that it's important to consider that the bronze serpent lifted up was a prophetic representation of Jesus Christ when He would be lifted up on the cross. And when Israel looked to the serpent on the standard, they were saved. But as earth, they were saved from the judgment of God, The judgment that God himself had sent. God didn't take away the serpents. They continued to bite the people. They continued to get sick. And God says, if you want to be relieved from this curse, look to the serpent. That's all you got to do. Look. He left those serpents to continue to bite the people because of the stubbornness of their sinful rejection. His judgment stands The bronze serpent was then provided out of God's grace to deliver the people from God's judgment against their sin. Further, the bronze serpent on the standard was a representation of God's grace to Israel. We observe that people were only to look. It wasn't by their works that they were delivered. It wasn't by their their efforts, their, their religious zeal or devotion. And those ones who believed God and looked were saved. No matter how many times you'd been bitten by how many snakes, how sick you were, how close to death you were, it didn't matter. Representative doesn't matter how many sins we've committed. We look to the cross. Look to the representative serpent. God provided the means. The people only had to turn in faith believing that God would do as He promised and deliver from death. When Jesus fulfilled this Old Testament representation on His cross, it was an act of even far greater grace than Israel had experienced. When we look to the cross of Jesus, it is a grace that forgives. Forgives all of our sins, provides life eternal in God's kingdom of glory. Is it not ironic that the symbol today in medicine... You see it on the side of ambulances as what? A serpent on a standard. We see that symbol every time an ambulance pulls up where people are hurting or perhaps dying, and it only symbolizes a healing salvation. But it points us to another healing salvation that is far greater and has far more eternal proportions. This is the imagery now given by Jesus to Nicodemus, an image this scholarly man would have been very familiar with. He knew the scriptures, he knew Numbers 21. But what Nicodemus had never understood, never accepted, was that this earthly image of deliverance pointed to a very heavenly truth of salvation. In the words of Jesus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. Do you realize that once Jesus spoke those words, Nicodemus would have had no clue what he's talking about until John chapter 19. He couldn't fully appreciate this truth being exposed to him until he watched the Son of Man lifted up on a cross and surrender his life to pay for the sins of his people. It is quite likely that when that time came for Jesus to be lifted up on Calvary, that Nicodemus was there, perhaps not close, because this is a Pharisee that wouldn't have wanted to file himself just before the Sabbath with a dead person. But it was on a hill, was it not? on Calvary? And when they erected Jesus on that standard, on that tree, is it not likely that Nicodemus saw it? He looked, and he saw, and quite possibly, the spirit moved like the wind, and he believed. If you turn to John 19, I picture Nicodemus looking up at the dying Savior And quite likely, this man comes to believe, not only in the earthly things of salvation, but the heavenly as well. There in John 19, in verse 30, as Jesus was crucified, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head, gave up his spirit. And then look over at verse 38, and we see a very different Nicodemus. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and he took away his body. Verse 39, Nicodemus, who had first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So that they took the body of Jesus and brought it in or or bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. These are the actions of a man that came to see Jesus Christ as the gracious provision of God sent to accomplish salvation for God's people. Nicodemus, in chapter 3, hesitated to believe these things on that nightly visit. But quite likely, he would remember this discourse on salvation the day that he watched Jesus Christ raise up into the air, give his life for his people, become a curse for even Nicodemus. As he watched the Son of Man hanging on a cross... Do you not think that Numbers 21 came to his mind? Having had that nightly discussion with Jesus Christ in John 3, this morning we have the privilege of ending our study by worshiping the one who is lifted up, and we take the bread, we take the cup together in memorial to his sacrifice. And it is important for us to be reminded here of what is declared in this memorial, And I trust that we all agree that this is all of grace. He, Christ, came full of grace and truth. Grace is evident in both the essential components of salvation, that of regeneration, and that of the substitutionary sacrifice, the representative serpent. And I want to just close on these three simple points that I hope we clearly see from our text. Grace makes us alive to God. It is the gracious act of the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to understand, to accept, and to believe we must be born again. And friends, if the Spirit did not graciously come and do this, we would still be spiritually dead corpses to this day. Because dead men don't make good decisions. We don't reach out to Jesus. We just lay there as dead corpses and by God's grace... He sends His Spirit to breathe new life into us. You must be born again. His regeneration is a gracious act of God. Secondly, grace reveals truth to the heart. What has been exposed to us in the early earthly gospel truth, that we are sinners and in need of a Savior, the heavenly gospel truths revealed to us by God's grace, that He alone has provided redemption by sending His Son coming down, extending from heaven, that saving redemption. And third, grace saves by faith alone. It couldn't be any more clear from our text. As Israel was commanded, look to the serpent. Look to the bronze serpent. It is a reminder that all we need to do is to put our faith and trust into this one that was lifted up into the air and who became a curse for us. As Jesus said, and I don't know that we can find any more wonderful words than this, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. We can't save ourselves. We can't merit our salvation. We can't contribute to it. We can only accept by faith the unmerited salvation provided in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. We have but to look at the risen Savior, The one that was risen on the standard was buried in the grave. And yet who rose from that grave? Father in heaven, together as your people, we are here to worship and to praise you, especially as we gather around the bread and the cup this morning. It is a memorial of your grace. It is a memorial to your love, your redemptive love that made provision for our salvation. But not only that, but a grace that awakened our hearts to desire it, to receive it, to understand we are sinners in need of salvation. Father, would you receive our worship this morning, recognizing we are coming to praise you for being a gracious God, a saving God. And we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.